that have been delighting my heart. I hope they've been delighting your heart as well. These laws of harvest in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 6 through 10. Hear the word of God. I hope we never tire of meditating and rejoicing in his word. Verses 6 through 10 of Galatians 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Father God, we look to your word and uh, pray that you would help us to grow by it. You have said uh, in uh, Jesus' word, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth, and it is our desire, O Lord, to be sanctified, to grow up into you in all things. And I pray as we uh, look into this passage that that would become uh, more and more of a reality in our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this series on the Christian and prosperity, uh, we've been seeing that it's very, very proper to pray for God's prosperity into each other's lives. And our theme verse is 3 John 2, and you must have it memorized by now. Why don't we try it as a congregation, just saying this verse together. Uh, 3 John 2, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. Okay, we may have to repeat this several times. But uh, as we looked at that passage, we looked at seven characteristics of what godly prospering even looks like. There are extremes on the subject, but what are the parameters within which we can expect prosperity from God's hand? And then on the second week, uh, we started looking at this Galatians 6 passage, at some of the eight laws of harvest, and so far we've covered two. First law is that we only reap when there has been sowing. Now, maybe somebody else is sowing. It may be our own sowing. And if that's the case, then we better jolly well find out what proper sowing is like, right? So we looked at ten principles of the kind of sowing that God blesses. And then the second week, uh, we saw that uh, we reap the same kind that we sow. And today we're going to look at law number three, and that is that we reap a multiplied increase of what we have sowed. We reap a multiplied increase. Now, this law by itself revolutionized Protestant Europe at the time of the Reformation and uh, took it away from the economic stagnation that was the inevitable result of uh, the Romanist theory. And uh, it not only uh, affected economics, it affect, affected uh, uh, social theory, it affected optimism in science. Uh, this was a profound law that the Protestant Europe uh, entered into. We reap a multiplied increase of what we sow. Now, it may seem so basic and so unimportant uh, that we, we might have doubts about how profound this is, but I hope by the end of the, the sermon you'll see this is an incredible law of harvest, and when people don't understand it and they do not believe it, 
uh, it is something that's going to profoundly affect them in a negative way. I mean, Protestants at the Reformation, they laid hold of this. This gripped their lives in many different ramifications, and I hope to at least introduce some of the ramifications to you so you can do some further study on your own. But first of all, let me just show you what this law is about. We reap a multiplied increase of what we sow. Now, that's shown in the eternal ramifications of verse 8. We're not just reaping in time, but we're reaping in eternity. But it, this law is also demonstrated simply by the illustration of sowing and reaping. A farmer, if he was to put one kernel of corn into the ground, and if the only thing he could expect in the fall was one kernel back, he wouldn't bother sowing, would he? Okay? With all of the risks that a farmer is taking, you know, there's drought, there's locusts, there's any number of calamities, fungus, different things that can ruin his crop. With all of the risks that he is taking, he has got to be sure that there is at least the potential for a great increase or he is not going to be motivated to plant. And actually, Thomas Aquinas and many theologians since that time have totally missed that in the area of economics, and we'll maybe look at that a little bit later on. But uh, let me just illustrate one of many, many, many examples that the Scripture gives simply in the physical realm. And this is a very mundane example. It's Genesis 26, verse 12. <clears throat> it says, Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now what that passage indicates is that if you're a farmer, you ought not to look at farming mechanistically. You're dependent upon the Lord. God stands behind the laws of harvest, and it's God who either makes the harvest grow, grow through blessing or he withholds that blessing. And in this particular case, he multiplied Isaac's sowing 100-fold. That means he put in one grain, and when he harvested, he gets for every one grain 100 grains back. Okay, It was more than enough to cover the cost of the laborers and everything that he has invested. And that's not uncommon at all. Uh, for example, uh, Christ speaks of seed that, quote, fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, the potential for growth is even greater with some seeds. If you take an apple and you cut it in half, you'll see a lot of seeds in the middle of the apple. And if you take just one of those seeds... It has the potential for growing a tree, and how many apples can you get off a tree year after year without doing any more sowing? Well, it's a whole lot more than a hundredfold. Uh, you've probably heard the old uh, saying, the old proverb, you can count how many seeds are in an apple, but you can't count how many apples are in a seed. And uh, that's this law of harvest. It's built right into nature. In Genesis chapter 1, over and over, you see that command, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, God has built it into the very way in which, uh, in which this uh, nature works. And uh, addition is one kind of increase, but multiplication is compounded increase over time. Now, one of the objections that some people might bring up is, uh, well, there's got to be exceptions to this law. Uh, you know, what about... You know, when a fire wipes out a crop or locusts come in and eat everything, is that not an exception? And I would say, no, it's not. Uh, nature has a way of rejuvenating itself. 
Uh, even with Mount St. Helens, I don't know how many of you have been keeping up on some of the, that's an intriguing spot, you know, in terms of creation science. But even Mount St. Helens, which did far more damage than a forest fire could ever do because it literally scoured the earth, you go over to Mount St. Helens now and you will see reforestation happening naturally all over the place. Nature has a way of, uh, of rejuvenating itself. And... Um, and, uh, and bringing correction. And even in the marketplace, that's true. You know, there was the depression. There have been many stock corrections since then. But none of those things ever did away with this law of harvest, ever. Now, it's universal, but I want to give a, a warning that these eight laws need to be taken together. You can't just take one in isolation and say, okay, I've, I've implemented this law and the God's not been following through. Okay, all eight laws need to be taken together. For example, if you look at Verse 9, he says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap, if we do not lose heart. Now, there's an explicit if, but each of the eight laws has an implicit if that is there. Okay, they, they, they come as a package. And as a package, when you implement them, they universally do apply. They, they apply, exact, for example, in social sense. Uh, Hosea 8, verse 7, talks about some of the social sins of the nation of Israel. It says they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Okay, they don't just reap back the wind. They always reap an increase of what they had sowed. Proverbs three times speaks about sowing. Sowing means planting seeds. Sowing discord among the brethren. And you might think, oh... Uh, you know, the, the slander, the gossip, that may not make that much of an effect, but Proverbs says it does. It's like dandelions, just one little tiny seed. But if it's not dealt with, if it's not plucked up, what happens is there's more and more dandelions until finally there's no more lawn. All you've got is dandelions. And Proverbs says it's got to be plucked up or it's going to tear apart the body. In uh, Hebrews, uh, it talks about a little seed of bitterness that creeps into a person's life and it says, watch out, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this, many become defiled. See the increase there? It started off with just one person, one little seed in his life. He doesn't root up that bitterness. He just wants to mull over that and go over and over it. And eventually he becomes corrupted, and many become corrupted through that. And so there's a multiplied increase. Now, it's not just... The negative, the positive increases as well. Paul said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Okay? Yes, there's an abounding of sin, but God's grace abounds even more in terms of this, <coughs> in terms of uh, this principle in our lives. And if we can once lay hold in our minds, that this is an invariable law that always holds true. And if we do not forget that, it can really help us to be motivated and encouraged in our Christian walk. Uh, it can um, give us a lot of impetus in the things that we do. We know God stands behind this law. He is not mocked. And believe me, there's a lot of people who do mock this law. You know, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A lot of people are deceived into thinking, they're not going to reap an increased harvest. And uh, uh, they mock God. I've seen it in my counseling. Well, people just resist the idea that there's going to be any disaster from the little things that they're doing. Uh, Marxism mocks this law. 
There's many different things in life that mock this law, but let me tell you something. God is not mocked. Uh, long after these mockers die and they're moldy in the ground, this law continues to operate. Whether we believe it or whether we don't believe it, okay, this is an invariable, universal law that applies to absolutely everything. So let's take a look at economics as one example. There are many people who make money and, uh, and uh, the different assets that they have in economic theory and labor. They make that an exception to this general principle. Uh, Aristotle was one who taught that money was sterile, that it was unproductive, and therefore that it was immoral to seek to gain interest on money. Okay, Thomas Aquinas uh, systematized that and took it over. Actually, you found it in the church and theologians much earlier than that, but he was the one who systematized it, and it became the official position of the church that uh, money was sterile and interest was immoral on anything that uh, you lent out. Now, uh, you might think that uh, this is an unimportant thing, you know, that money cannot multiply, uh, and we might think, get on with the important stuff, Pastor, but this is important. False teaching on this economic subject has just spread all throughout the church in America. Uh, it is this concept that has brought stagnation to Roman Catholic countries. Uh, Calvin freed the church from this kind of thinking, and we need to understand it. We need to think about it. We need to study it. Now, interestingly, in the Protestant church today, there's a number of people that want us to go back to the Roman Catholic theory. Um, uh, people like uh, Mooney and Hoskins, even uh, Reconstructionists like Vic Lockman. Uh, who uh, disagrees with Gary North, and he, they have so bought into uh, the uh, uh, view of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle that money is sterile that they very logically, very consistently argue that it is immoral to charge rent on an apartment or on a house. And the reason that they're driven to that logical conclusion is because they know that passages like Leviticus 25 make rent and interest equivalent, okay? All interest is is rent on money that has been lent out that somebody else is using, you're not able to use during this period of time. And so they very logically, uh, they, they push on that. Now, I want to demonstrate that this law of harvest does apply to money, but let me first of all give a quote from Moody that just kind of captures the essence of his objection. He says, if there is only $10 in existence and you lend it to someone under condition that he repay $11, and if he agrees to this, he has agreed to the impossible. Can you see the logic there? See, you, you can see he's bought into the idea that, that money is sterile. It can't reproduce. Money is sterile. And therefore, if there's $10 in existence, you're asking for a return of more than is there. You're asking not only for the impossible, but you're asking something that is immoral. Can you see that? Let me read that quote again. He says, if there's only $10 in existence and you lend it to someone under condition that he repay $11, and if he agrees to this, he has agreed to the impossible. Now, Scripture challenges that and experience uh, uh, challenges that as well. But the most important, Scripture uh, challenges that. Now, first of all, let me just explain that there are many different forms of money. Even cigarettes served in the function of money during World War II. 
uh, because they were valuable, they were dividable, they had all the functions that money had. And so let me start with a definition of money. This is a quote here. Money is any form of goods or property that performs the following three functions. First, it is a store of value. In other words, it, you know, it has a purchasing power over a long period of time. It says, first, it is a store of value. Second, it is a medium of exchange or a commodity that makes complex trading possible. So it's a medium of exchange. Third, it is a unit of account, such as a dollar, franc, ounce of gold, pounds of tobacco, etc. Well, there's no logical reason why any of those could not grow. You can always dig up more gold. You can grow more tobacco. You can print more money. Now, that's an interesting debate there, you know, in terms of the printing of money. I think that fiat money is immoral, but I still think that it is money. And there's a lot of people don't don't agree with that because if you look at how the Scripture treats um, money and trading and things like that, it's not just an objective value. It is primarily a subjective value. And as long as people impute value to American dollars, it can function like money. There's no reason why it cannot function like money because there's an imputed value that's been given to it by enough people. Now, if America goes hog wild and starts printing out tons of money every year, it'll start inflating and people eventually lose all confidence in the dollar. But uh, whether it's moral or immoral, money, you know, printed money uh, uh, still uh, can function as money. Okay, well, that is a little bit of a side note background. Uh, scripture indicates that as dominion increases, the demand for money increases, and because money is simply a store of value of that dominion, money itself will reflect this law of dominion. Do I need to read that again? Scripture indicates that as dominion increases, the demand for money increases, and because money is simply a store of value of that dominion, money itself will reflect this law of of dominion. Now, Thomistic, Thomistic means Thomas Aquinas, Thomistic thinkers, and in many ways, Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant man and uh, had a lot of good theology, but he was messed up in some areas as well. But um, Thomistic thinkers, they will object, they will say the scripture forbids interest, and therefore, by very definition, the biblical definition, it cannot grow. Okay? Money is supposed to be sterile. And uh, they will appeal to uh, a number of passages, I believe, are taken out of context. And I don't want to bore you with um, all of the details, but let me just give you, let me give you uh, a chart that gives just a few sample scriptures on how the, the Bible treats interest. Um, and then we'll try to draw some conclusions from this. Now, if you're note-takers, you don't have to be... And by the way, note-taking is the best compliment you can give to a pastor or that you can give to God himself because it implies you don't want to forget this. You want to implement it, okay, uh, over time. So I do encourage note-taking, but I, do, I did copy about 10 to 15 uh, extra of these. I forget now. Maybe it's 15 extra of these sheets so you don't have to be wildly um, copying these all down. Now, you'll see that interest is condemned. I don't want you to get me wrong. I think that the passages that Thomas Aquinas and others appeal to are very important passages. We, the scriptures say we ought not to charge interest, for example, on loans to the poor. Why? Because God wants to multiply the number of people who can effectively take dominion. Very important part. 
of dominion. And he says, we ought to avoid putting ourselves under oppressive uh, 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 loans and interest as well. And so the first three columns here show that there is, uh, uh, there is some negativity. It, sometimes it's not advisable to take that. But then if you look at some of the scriptures under columns four through six, you will see that there are a number of scriptures that indicate that uh, an interest-bearing loan can be a blessing to both the lender and to the borrower terms of a, a business loan, for example. Uh, it can be a blessing to both. And uh, you can't just take some of the scriptures. You've got to take all of the scriptures to get the full picture. Uh, let me just give you a few examples here. Luke 16.11 uh, says, If you have not been faithful in the money of the unrighteous, who will commit to your trust the two riches? Now, take a look at the application he makes in the same chapter. We've got to be faithful with the money of the unrighteous. But well, here's his parable. He says, Why then did you not put money, my money, in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Christ did the same thing with the parable in Matthew 25. You ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Now, I think one of the most powerful passages is Leviticus 25 which gives an extended treatment of loans. Now, it does say there is an absolute maximum cap on how long of a loan you should take out, because I don't want you indebting your children. Take a loan for one generation, but no longer. And yet, it does not do away with interest. It doesn't even say what a maximum cap for interest might be. Okay, and that's an interesting concept. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to develop uh, Leviticus uh, 25, but gaining interest on money is simply good stewardship, and uh, restitution in Scripture always took into account the minimum um, amount that a person might have gotten from that money that was stolen or from property that maybe he would have been able to put out uh, for rent. Now, generally speaking, those who believe that money is an exception to this law of harvest, that it is sterile, were the Roman Catholic countries, and uh, the, the countries that, that applied, generally speaking, all eight of these laws of harvest were the Protestant and especially the Reformed countries like Switzerland or America. And I think the results speak for themselves. Uh, there, isn't, there hasn't been any Roman Catholic country that has prospered economically. Uh, it's been devastating when they've uh, applied those principles, and the Reformed countries have prospered absolutely incredible. Uh, a revolutionary concept, and uh, it stands at the foundation of Calvin's free market economics. Obviously, a lot of other biblical principles that Calvin had. But Professor C. Greg Singer said, The influence of Calvin on economic theory and practice has been hardly less extensive than that which he exercised on the political order. Okay? The bottom line is, if you've got a view that money is static, it's going to lead to a static economy. And it, it, it has. Any countries that have taken... Uh, that view. And uh, this is, by the way, uh, since it's a universal principle, this is why Japan took off economically when it very self-consciously, after World War II, very self-consciously abandoned the economics that had flowed out of Shintoism and borrowed the economics from America. It was bound to prosper because these aren't principles that, uh, you know, in, in sin, you can ask for forgiveness, the laws will work. For a pagan, he applies these laws, the laws will work. These work across the board, and so it's no wonder then that countries that have borrowed 
Some of these economic principles are going to prosper to that degree. And why it is that Japan is going to head downhill if they continue to follow some of America's modern policies. But uh, in any case, this does apply to economics. And again, people might be wondering, why, why do I apply it so much to economics and not the so-called spiritual uh, you know, principles in our private life and other things like that? I, I think a threefold answer to that is, number one, nobody else is teaching on this. It's important that they get some teaching out. Number two, uh, the Bible talks a lot about that. It's incredible how much the Bible talks about money. Absolutely incredible. And number three, it is spiritual, okay? It is spiritual. It's either demonic economics or it is Christian economics. There are no two other alternatives. Uh, either we are submitting to the economic laws of God or we are rebelling against those laws. There really is no alternative. And there's a lot of people who are trying to rebel against biblical laws of economics. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled with some of the stuff that John Robbins and others of his associates have been doing where they've dr drawn out in terms of the whole system of economics, the theorems of economics from the scriptures. And I think we're faithless to Christ if we are not taking every area of life captive to the Lord Jesus Christ and applying his law as far as he applies it. If we want to prosper, I think we'll study that as well. By the way, I can give you some tips on reading, uh, further readings. I'm just going to be giving some introduction to different concepts that you may want to read on your own. Now let's move on. Let's start applying this law to some other areas of life. Eschatology is a classic place where this law can be seen. Now eschatology is just a big $5 word that's from the Greek and it means the study of last things or future things. And uh, uh, it doesn't have to be our future. It can be future of people in the past. For example, Scriptures that prophesied Christ's first coming and his crucifixion, that was eschatology to Daniel, okay? And um, uh, scriptures that prophesied uh, Daniel's being cast into exile, you know, that was prophecy to, that was eschatology to um, Jeremiah. And so it, eschatology has to do with the future uh, to a person. And at any given period of history, Eschatology deals always with an increase, a multiplied increase. It can either be going forward or going backward, but there's always going to be either a positive or a negative increase. It's impossible to stand still. Even culture either moves for Christ or it moves against him. It either gets better and better or it gets worse and worse. Uh, there are no other alternatives. He is not for me is against me. And I think that's why 2 Timothy 3 as uh, 13 talks about evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. He's talking about the period uh, leading up to 70 AD there. But any time, any period of time when God withdraws his grace from a culture, it is going to get worse and worse. And any time that God prospers the seeds that the church is planting into that society and says, okay, it is time for this to increase then that culture is going to be moving forward. Now, the encouraging thing for me is that God has promised so many promises that uh, he's going to prosper the seed that the church is sowing. Isaiah 9 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
And the verse goes on to say, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God will guarantee that there will always be workers going out. There will always be missionaries going out to the far reaches of the globe. There's going to be uh, people who are witnessing to their neighbors and reaching out. And why can we assume this? Because of the laws we've already looked at, that there can be no harvest if there isn't planting. And so God, if we're not planting, we can say, okay, there's not going to be a harvest. You know, you cannot pit, you cannot make eschatology work in a vacuum. It works within the context of the eight laws of, of harvest. And uh, we ought never to grow weary in doing good because Christ has prophesied during our period of time to never grow discouraged uh, until the earth is converted. Isaiah 42 says about Christ, He shall bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now what Christ is doing is he's putting into practice Galatians 6 and verse 9, not growing weary, not growing discouraged. Why? Because he knows there's going to be a guaranteed influx, an increase of the number of souls. Uh, that, 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 that come into his kingdom. Romans 5.15 says, For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God. Romans 5.20 says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now he's admitting there was an abounding of sin, but he's also talking about a much more abounding of God's grace in history. Proverbs 4, verse 18 says, But the path of the just is like the shining sun, that shines ever brighter under the perfect day. The Old Testament says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers, how far? To the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. But he says his mercy is shown to a thousand generations of those who love him. That's what Paul is talking about. Yes, sin does abound. Third and fourth generation, that's a huge increase, a multiplication. But he says there's an even greater increase when God's mercy is shown uh, to a culture. And uh, it's true, there are going to be dandelions that will grow up in our lives, in our culture, but uh, God has promised an even greater growth as we enthusiastically plant righteousness into our children and into our society. We are destined for victory if we will only try. Okay, We're destined for victory if we will only try. There's no reason why we should be discouraged by what we see around us. Now, we can get discouraged if we're just holding up in the church and we're not planting anything. Then God says, okay. I mean, if, if you want to second-guess God's predestination, everybody's holding up in their church, say, well, God must have predestined that we're not going to prosper. We're not going to get an increase, right? If we're not out there, we're not going to get anything. And that's why Calvinism has always believed tr trustingly, absolutely, in God's sovereign control over everything, but also has said, we must be out there planning. You cannot pit sovereignty against the responsibility of God. And don't hold up in the church. The images of growth in the kingdom are always uh, uh, very, very encouraging to me. Christ likens the kingdom from his first coming on to seed that is planted in the ground. That's first the bud, then the stalk, and finally the harvest. He likens it to leaven that leavens the whole lump. He likens it to... Uh, a mustard seed, tiny, yet it grows into a huge bush. And Daniel, he likens the kingdom to a little stone. That's Christ. He came down. He strikes the image. It grows into a mountain. Finally, the mountain fills the whole earth. In Ezekiel's parable, there's this tiny little trickle coming out of the temple. That's the living streams of God's grace. Ankle deep. 
He walks along. And that's, as you go down history, he walks along. It's up to his waist. Finally, it's so deep, he cannot swim over it. And it says it's bringing healing to the whole earth. That is what this law is all about. There is a multiplied increase to what is sowed. And the book of Acts illustrates that it keeps talking about the church multiplying. Until we enter into heaven, the church is going to keep growing and growing so long as the church is faithful in sowing the seed. Now, if that's true, then that means it ought to apply, point D, it ought to apply to our evangelism methods and to our long-term strategies at changing society. Okay, It means we're not going to just focus on short-term goals. Obviously, there have got to be short-term goals. But we're not just going to focus on short-term goals of maybe getting another candidate into office. We're going to look at the long-term goals, and we're going to put structures in place that are not going to hinder those long-term goals from being achieved. Now, unfortunately, we're all short-term thinkers, it seems, when it comes into the political arena. The same is true in evangelism. I think that many churches are more enamored with addition than they are with multiplication. You know what, know what I mean there? They're, they're just enamored with uh, uh, evangelists who can bring in, you know, 10,000 souls. You know, wow, what an incredible evangelistic crusade was out there. Well, Dr. Robert Coleman, in his uh, book on, oh, what's the name of it, Bob? Master Plan of Evangelism. That's just must-reading. That's an incredible book. But he demonstrates, I believe very convincingly, these eight laws of harvest don't apply to the evangelist who's in a mass crusade. A couple of them do. All eight apply to discipleship. All eight apply to discipleship. And uh, I, I think it's very important that we, we follow the, uh, the pattern that Christ set. And mass evangelism was not Christ's primary method of evangelism. Now, he did it. But that was not, even the crowds that came to that, they were not the ones that stuck around. What Christ did is he poured most of his life, of his three, three and a half years of ministry, most of that time he was pouring these eight principles and he was pouring all of his teaching into 12 apostles. Okay, And it was those apostles who discipled others, who in turn discipled others that caused the multiplication to take off. Let me just ask you a question. Which would you be more excited over? An evangelist? Uh, let, let's just make it wild and extreme, something that's impossible. Okay. Which would you be more excited over? I was going to maybe make it ten evangelists, but let's just say there's one evangelist who can win by God's grace. God blesses him so powerfully, he's used by God to win one million people to Christ every year. That would be pretty exciting, pretty exciting news. Which would be more exciting to you, that or to have a discipler who was so effective in his discipling that he was able to disciple three people every year and to teach those people to disciple three people every year just as effectively as he did? Okay. Now, many times people, they're, they're just wild about the evangelist. But Christ's method was the other. Now, people might get pretty discouraged with the discipleship method because at the end of five years of hard labor, only 243 people would be won to the Lord and discipled. And there's five million people that these evangelists have won to the Lord. Compounding growth takes time. By the end of 10 years, the discipleship method 
would have won 59,049 believers, and the mass evangelists would still be in the limelight with 10 million. Okay, so he's way in advance. By the end of the 15th year, the discipleship method would have almost caught up with a total of 14,349,000 disciples, but from there on, there is no comparison. Um, by the year 20, the discipleship method would still be having one person disciple only three people each year. Okay, By the end of the 20th year, it would have reached 3,486,784,000. That's almost 3.5 billion whereas the mass evangelist would have only won 20 million to the Lord. Now, the next year, it would increase to 10.5 billion, and in just a few years, if the Lord prospered, the whole world would be converted. Okay? In far less than one generation, the whole world would be converted. And they wouldn't be babies. Okay? They'd be discipled. See, we short-circuit God's methodology because we're just impatient with God's laws of harvest. They're too slow. <laughs> we want things right now. We like the instant success. And um, that's why Galatians 6 warns us, don't get weary. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Okay, this takes time. Now, we don't know what the next few years might bring in America, anywhere in the world, whether God's going to give a, a twofold, a threefold, a onefold, a tenfold. You know, he talks about 20, 30, 30, 60, 100-fold. We don't know what God is going to bring. I just calculated it based on a threefold increase. Okay? And uh, if God gave a greater increase than that, it would it would be phenomenal the, the 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 changes in society. And God prophesies there's coming a time when the knowledge of the Lord will be as full as the waters covering the ocean beds. In other words, it's going to be expensive. And uh, we need to take Paul's admonition seriously when he says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. God always gives a greater increase than what is sown. And I think that's why Galatians 6.10 says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Why does he not wanting us investing all of our time and our energies just, now it's especially supposed to be with believers, but not just there, well, it's because He's expecting there's going to be a difference that's made in the unbelieving world. He's expecting that the Great Commission is not going to be an empty commission. It will be a fulfilled commission. Okay? Now, let's apply this harvest principle to, to our families. Uh, you've been investing huge amounts of money and time and effort into your children. And that's good. That's wonderful. And you need to have faith that uh, you will sow the, if you continue to sow this, you will reap far more than what you have invested. Now, uh, if you're insecure, this, there's the tendency to be intimidated by this. I, I've seen many parents that are intimidated because, uh, and maybe even offended because their children do things differently than they do it, or uh, they do it more effectively than they do it. This is what we ought to desire. I mean, this ought to be the whole goal of our lives, that our children will go way beyond anything that we've been able to do, that they can stand on our shoulders and see far farther than we've been able to see and to avoid the mistakes that we have made. I think it was beautiful testimony that R.C. Sproul Sr. gave when he and Prince said that, uh, uh, to his shame, he said, uh, his son is far more consistent biblically 
and has a far more consistent antithesis in terms of his application of the word of God to society, and he rejoiced in that. Okay, that ought to be our expectation. We know our kids are going to go beyond us. We want that to happen in our lives. And I want to aid and to train my children in such a way they avoid the lousy mistakes that I have made and uh, that they do a better job than, than I've been able to do. By the way, some people just think, oh, you know, look at R.J. Rushdoony. Well, I'd never be able to measure up to him. Well, of course I can't measure up to R.J. Rushdoony. Look at the generation after generation. How many years did it go back, Bob? Uh, 700 years of, of pastors, you know, that have been investing in their children's lives, having a long-term perspective. It's no wonder this guy uh, had the kind of impact on society that he has had. Don't worry. If you don't, we're looking for the long haul, and I'm expecting my kids will go way beyond what I've been able to do. Now, here's some suggestions relative to the third law of harvest, and the first one so obvious we might miss it. The dominion mandate commands us to be fruitful and to multiply, okay? God, because he wants us to have an impact of dominion upon this world, he wants us to have lots of babies, okay? This is just such a basic application, and yet it would be easy uh, to miss out on it. He doesn't want us to have more babies than we would be able to uh, raise effectively and to train effectively, but he still wants us to outnumber the Egyptians, and he wants us to have an impact. He doesn't want us selfishly thinking, yeah, well, this might hinder how much I enjoy life. Forget the enjoyment of life. Enjoy your kids. You know, our children are part of the dominion that we take. Uh, as we shoot them out of, our, out of our quiver, you know, we shoot them so that they take their mark in the world. Uh, let me just give you a couple of scriptures. Uh, we all know about the Israelites outnumbering the Egyptians. Well, when they went to Canaan, they were supposed to do the same with the Canaanites. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Exodus 23:30. He commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. Well, he didn't take that away in the New Testament. In fact, he even tells younger widows. He tells them, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. <clears throat> you look at the statistics of the birth dearth. Unbelievers are having fewer and fewer children all the time. Believers are having more and more children all the time. Uh, it's encouraging. You know, if, if believers would double the size of their families, boy, I tell you, it would, the, 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 the compounding of this growth would speed up all of the more. Now, I'm not saying there's any problem in this congregation. I'm wanting to encourage you guys, okay? I'm wanting to encourage you. Your children are an asset, okay? They're not something to be discouraged over. They are a stewardship trust. And I should point out that um, uh, whether you think I'm right or wrong, I do believe that uh, much of uh, birth control is uh, unbiblical is wrong, but I do believe that there is a place for birth control. Because scripture does talk about uh, the spacing of children. And it does talk about the mother's health and the importance of training. them. But whether right or wrong, treat them as a stewardship, a delight, and want to have as many children as God can enable you to have. Now, this assumes we're willing to train our children well. We must sow the seed of education into their lives. Psalm 78 commands us to explain the difficult passages of the Old Testament. That's the law that you guys are so bored by. You know, when I teach you on the case law of the Old Testament, he says, uh, I want you to teach all of that, and here's the commitment that they've made. We will not hide them. Hide what? 
That's the difficult passages of the Old Testament. He says, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers. And you might say, shoot, I don't even understand them myself. How can I teach my kids? Well, do what you can. You study and your kids are going to go beyond you. And hopefully by the third generation, our kids will be knocking down the walls of the enemies because they understand God's case laws. They're in a place where they can stand in the gap and know what ought to be done. So here's my question. Do you have a long-term vision of how you're planting education in your children's lives, you're just trying to squeak by. You've got to have a long-term vision. To the best of our abilities, we need to resource them. Part of it's finances. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So do you have a savings program? God's not going to increase what you're not planting into that savings program. Do you, have a, do you have savings for a car? God's not going to increase what you're not putting in. Even if it's a widow's might, we need to invest for the future, for emergency fund. And maybe you're the generation that's just going to be investing a little bit, you know, emergency funds, as far as you're going to be able to get. And the next generation's going to be better off where they may be able to hand on inheritance to their children. Proverbs 19.14 says, Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers. Notice he says, houses. There is nothing wrong with giving a house to your child as a wedding gift. People say, oh, they've got to learn to work for their, their own way through. Why? Why? We need to be thinking in terms of dominion. How can I make sure that my child is in a situation where he's going to be more effective than I have ever been in the dominion that I've been trying to take. We need to think through what is best for our children. That may mean we're not going to give one of our children uh, the inheritance that others had uh, because Scripture says they may waste it. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 21 warns us, an inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. Solomon says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable. So inheritances are not automatic, okay? There may be a child that is such a scoundrel, such a wastrel, that you just say, you're cut out of my will. I love you, but I'm not going to waste God's kingdom resources by giving them to you. I know you're going to blow it all, okay? We've got to be stewards. But the general principle is we're going to lay up for our children. Here's 2 Corinthians 12, 14. The children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Are you laying up for your children? Are you at least getting out of debt for your children? Okay. Are you doing incrementally what you're able to do to make sure your kids will be one step above you and your grandchildren will be one step above them? Now, let me end, and this sermon does have an end, even though it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> let me end by making three applications to our individual lives. Sin, righteousness, again, since this series is on Christian and prosperity, economics. Okay, I've already indicated uh, a couple of ways in which the seeds of sin, when they are planted, will always produce an, an increase. We saw it with bitterness. We saw it, um, uh, Proverbs talked about um, uh, sowing dissension and uh, slander and gossip. 
But here's one from John 5:14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Okay? He implied this was a discipline. He's been healed of this discipline. He says, don't sin anymore, lest a worse thing. So there's an increase of discipline. Well, you find that in Leviticus. He says, God disciplines... The person doesn't listen, he disciplines them harder. If he won't listen to that, there's going to be a sevenfold discipline. If he doesn't listen to that, there will be seven times harder discipline. In other words, there's an increase of the discipline that God brings in, into our lives when there is sin. Uh, likewise, just as societies either get better or worse, individuals either get influenced toward better or for worse. It's impossible to remain static. That's what this law says, impossible. In 1 Corinthians 11:17 it says when you eat the Lord's supper you're eating either for the better or for the worse. There is no in between. There's only two directions you can go. There's an increase to the worse or there's an increase to the better when you, every time you take up the Lord's table. Okay, secondly, sowing righteousness leads to more righteousness. And this can be so encouraging to believers who are struggling with sin. And they're sowing seeds, and they're saying, oh, man, it just seems like I'm growing so slow. Well, compounded growth does take some time, but believe me, if you persevere, there will be a, 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 an increase. Paul says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says of the believer that follows the Lord, that he is being transformed from glory to glory. That's an increase. Psalm 84 describes uh, those who are living by God's grace that they grow from strength to strength. Now, it's not automatic. We've got to be sowing to the Spirit, but it's there. Paul's prayer for the Philippians was that they would continue to persevere, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Colossians 1 says the same. He says, keep planting, that you may be fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay? It does get easier to listen to sermons like this. <laughs> it does get easier to read theological books. I remember the first theology book I read uh, was by Francis Schaeffer, and uh, let's see, I would have been about 20, and I read that book. My brother recommended it to me, and I read it, oh, it was so boring, and it was just, it was over my head, I just had a hard time understanding it, but I persevered. I just said, I have to do this. Two years later, I came back to that book, and it was a piece of cake, and I wondered, why in the world did I think that was so hard? Well, unbeknownst to me, this principle of harvest had been working. I've been increasing little by little in the knowledge of God to the point where I was able to grasp those things. So be encouraged. Uh, it does get easier over time. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Colossians 2, 9 talks about the nourishment of the church increasing with the increase of God. So if you are consistent with these eight laws of harvest, you will grow in sanctification. You will grow in knowledge. You will grow in love. You're going to grow in every area of your life if you're consistent. Okay. I, I've had, believe it or not, I've had to cut out tons of scriptures. Um, but let me end by applying this to the money that we invest into God's kingdom. Now, this principle guarantees it's impossible to outgive God in time and in eternity. Uh, remember Mark 10? We looked at last week. Uh, there's a hundredfold increase in this time and even more in time to come. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9.6, He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. When Amaziah 
was faced with a decision. God told him to do this, and if he did it, he would lose a ton of money. And he complained about losing that money. Here's what the prophet said. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. You know, when obeying the Lord means there's going to be a sacrifice, don't worry about it. You can never outgive the Lord, no matter what the sacrifice might be. Job 42.12 tells us, Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, and he goes on to list other things, including the children that the Lord added to him. Now, I'm not going to repeat all of the scriptures that I gave under law number one, but it applies to our investments. It applies to tithing. In Haggai, the people are puzzled why they're not prospering more, and Haggai tells them it's because they're not tithing. People say, we can't tithe unless the Lord blesses us, and they said, you got it all wrong. Haggai says, the reason you're cursed, the reason you're not being blessed is because you're not tithing. And so if people say, I'm not prospering enough, Haggai would say it's probably because you're not giving enough. Okay? Uh, we, we need to invest into God's kingdom. Now, Malachi puts this law of harvest, I think, in stark relief with what was happening in Israel. Let me read it. Malachi 3, 8 through 12. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. I want you to notice, he doesn't say you can pick and choose where you're going to send your tithe like uh, R.J. Rushdoony said. R.J. Rushdoony said a lot of great stuff, but it didn't say it's under your control. He says, bring all the tithe into the storehouse, and we're robbing God if we don't do it. So he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. There's the multiplied increase. He goes on, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What's true of tithing is also true of giving beyond the tithe and of alms that we give to the poor. Luke 6.38 says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put back into your bosom. Okay, He's giving more. Giving back more. And let me end with one more scripture on stewardship that illustrates this law. It's Proverbs 11, verse 24. says, There is one who scatters yet increases more. He's talking about a person who's giving out money and good things, and he's just giving and giving. He's scattering, and yet he's giving, getting back more. There is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. And it's my prayer that as you examine all of the areas of your life in light of the eight principles of harvest, you will be filled with joy and delight at the realization that as you invest into God's kingdom, as you put seed into all of the different plots of land that God has made you a steward of, you will be guaranteed that you will reap more than what you put in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you that you are a God who can be depended upon, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever and that we can count on these laws of harvest working now 
just as they worked before. Help us to be faithful in our giving. Help us to be faithful in our investing in our children. Help us to be faithful in all of the things that we, uh, you have entrusted us with. Father, may we seek you first and your kingdom, and we will trust you to add into our lives all of the things that we need. We love you, Father, and we give ourselves to you. In Christ's name, amen.